Dr. Colleen Darnell. We're going to talk about, uh, well, the centennial for the discovery of King Tut. We're also going to talk about her and her husband's new book called Egypt's Golden Couple, When Akhenaten and Nefertiti Were Gods on Earth. And we're going to talk about the 1920s, and we're going to talk about vintage clothes, and we're going to talk about all kinds of interesting things. Here's Colleen. Welcome back to the show. It's been a while. <laughs> it is so great to be back. How you doing? Very well. It's been a busy but very enjoyable semester. And in just a couple of weeks, John and I will be going back to the field in Egypt. Oh, really? Are you excited? Oh, of course. Always. That's so cool. Um. Has it been difficult for you to do research with, you know, you know, when the world shut down, obviously it was, but still after effects of the pandemic, has that made it difficult to go to, like, Egypt to do research? So they've enacted some really effective policies around the Ministry of Antiquities in Egypt. So it's been very safe to work uh, once things opened up in terms of travel. So with vaccinations and boosters and precautions, it's been it's been great. Well, that's good. That's good because I was wondering, um, you know, Egypt has had as many problems as U.S. I mean, with the with this, and so I was just curious if they did they have any restrictions for people from other countries um, because of the pandemic. I I don't actually know the the full chronology. Okay, I just was curious. Your pandemic uh, policies. I I just know that they did open up to tourists earlier than other places. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. Yeah, because they kind of rely on us. (laughs) It's like one of those things. Um, But I. I I I I always loved I I always wanted to go to Egypt. Um, is there like um, would you recommend anything for the new tourists going to Egypt for the first time? So Egypt is my favorite place in the world to visit. Everyone there is just lovely, and it has so many luxury hotels for reasonable prices. It's very safe, uh, and the, what you get to see in terms of museums, there's this new Egyptian museum, the National Museum of Egyptian Civilization, and that museum, which I've not yet been to, but I'm very much looking forward to, so this is a, a good recommendation for future tourists, is 
a presentation of Egypt, not just from antiquity, but all the way through to the modern world. So I just saw a video of their new textile gallery, which I was looking at because I'm teaching a class via Zoom called Fashion in Ancient Egypt that's just wrapping up this week. And they showed the textiles on display, and it has everything from 3000 BCE all the way through the 20th century with fashion and textiles. And I'm so looking forward to seeing that museum. That is so cool. I mean, that is really cool that they have that incredibly wide exhibit, uh, the research that must have gone into it. Oh, absolutely. And I've been honored to work with the premier jewelry designer in Egypt. Her name is Aza Fahmi, and she makes incredible pieces that are inspired not only by ancient Egypt, but also Islamic design and a number of different traditions. So I just love, love her, her work. My mother always had a very soft spot for uh, the scarab. So my father used to give her a different scarab on their anniversary every year. It was so sweet. <laughs> That's a lovely story. <laughs> he, um, the last one he gave her was this gorgeous one from Tiffany's, and he was like, really nervous. And he had a, it was like a little uh, pendant, and it was in a Tiffany's box. And I'm going, like, Mom's going to turn away something from Tiffany's. <laughs> and he says, but look at it. Is it pretty? <laughs> he was so cute, so nervous. <laughs> but, um, yeah, that, it, I just, there's, I, ha, I now, it's all, now I have them all. Um, but um, but I, I've always liked scarabs, too. Is is there a favorite um type of jewelry from ancient Egypt that you like or is there is I don't I'm not pushing scarabs on you I'm just of all the different types <laughs> oh scarabs are uh, great I have a soft spot for the broad color the Wessach color and one of the pieces that I got to wear when I was doing some media work with Azafahmi was a reproduction in, well, not so much a reproduction. It, it's a design inspired by a broad color that was found at ancient Akhenaten from the reigns of Akhenaten and Nefertiti. And it's currently in the Metropolitan Museum made of faience with these really amazing floral designs. And she had crafted a design inspired by that necklace in the Metropolitan Museum that was in gold and silver. And even though it was quite a lot of material, it was so comfortable to wear. And I just think the way she incorporates wearability and design is amazing. Cool. I love I love uh, discovering new types of design. I, um, I wonder... Because um, we're going to uh, be talking about your book about Akhenaten and Nefertiti, but I wonder because it's the hundredth anniversary coming up of King Tut, is, do you think it's going to start a whole new fashion trend like it did in the twenties? That's an interesting question. I don't see a lot of unity in design, say on on current runways. So I would really doubt 
at the 100 year anniversary because it's not a new discovery that would that we would see much of an Egyptian revival like we did in in the 1920s in fashion as well as music and other other objects often quite kitschy I have to say yeah <laughs> but it would be nice I think what I would most like to see is that the anniversary really encourages and inspires people to go to Egypt and to see the antiquities and the modern country. Yeah, yeah, I can understand that. I remember when um, the uh, exhibit came to L.A. and my family went to see it. I, I had never been so excited in my whole life to get that close to King Tut stuff. Um, it, I, I, it was just overwhelming to me. Um, and I wasn't in Egypt, I was in L.A., so <laughs> I can't even imagine what it would be like to go see that new museum and be with all those amazing antiquities. It would just knock my little socks off. <laughs> There's a, nothing more impressive than <laughs> ancient Egyptian artifacts. Yeah. Oh, my God. Um, I mean, seeing the real famous stuff was really cool like the masks and all that stuff that was there but seeing other things like his toys and and his um his wife's jewelry box and all these other artifacts that were in the exhibit too it it gave you a more personal feeling toward this young couple you know it just i mean she didn't die but you know he had some of her stuff with him um, but it just, I thought it was, it was very touching and you felt really bad that she lost her husband so quickly, you know, even though hundreds of thousands of years ago, but, um, it, 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 it touched you. <laughs> no, I, I totally agree though. The, the objects of daily life, not so much even the, the gold and the treasure and the jewelry, but makeup applicators or wigs, clothing, pottery, all of those things give you a sense of just shared activities that I, I think is really fun. Yeah. And it, it, it makes you, it, it connects you because it's, you can understand it. It's, it's you, you have part of that in your daily life now. So you, it connects you to the ancients in a, in a very human way. And I think that's cool. It, 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 it's it, anything that connects you to history is a good thing. <laughs> Absolutely, to be able to understand the past. Exactly. Um, now, I'm really curious. What is it that personally attracted you and your husband to Akhenaten and Nefertiti? Was it the new discoveries that you found? I'm mean, not you personally, but all of the new, that you found and other people found. Or have you always had an interest in them? Both John and I uh, have spent a lot of time researching ancient Egyptian religion, and it's very difficult to study religion in ancient Egypt without really getting into what changed and what didn't change during the reigns of Akhenaten and Nefertiti. So much of this grew out of research that we had done on religion, and John had been researching Akhenaten for a very long time um, before 
And in 2007, we published a book called Tutankhamun's Army, The Battle and Conquest in Egypt's Late 18th Dynasty. And that book looked at the military history of the reign of Tutankhamun, but a little bit as well of Akhenaten and his successors, um, I and Horemhab. So we had tackled the military and diplomatic side of things. And it always had in the back of our minds how much fun it would be to write a biography of Akhenaten and Nefertiti and move beyond earlier books that often have a very strong opinion, not necessarily supported by the ancient evidence, about these people that lived 3,300 years ago. And the idea that with new readings of ancient Egyptian texts, uh, with new discoveries that have been made archaeologically at the site of Amarna uh, by British excavations and others, that there was so much more that, that could be said about the period. So even though more books have probably been written about Akhenaten than any other ancient Egyptian pharaoh, there was much left to be said. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Do you think that the... Um the mummy that was found was Nefertiti? It seems to be controversial. So it's very difficult to identify the the mummies of Tia and Nefertiti, and there continues to be debate. And so some have suggested that Nefertiti's tomb and thus her mummy are yet to be found. In terms of the DNA evidence, there is that helps in terms of identifying uh, the mummies. And one of the things that we focused on in Nefertiti's story was that she was, based on genetic evidence, and then this also is pretty well supported by textual sources as well, that Nefertiti was first cousins with Akhenaten on both her maternal and paternal side. Yeah. That that was uh, in ancient times thought to strengthen uh, the um, the bond and the the and the um, their position as a royal couple. Um, they didn't really understand about what it was doing to their children, but um, but it's it's interesting. I mean, the effect on. Akhenaten, uh, it was probably because of the the thing about Egyptians marrying each other. Um, so actually, there is there's no evidence that Akhenaten had any particular medical condition. Oh really? And that's we get into a bit is that his the way he is represented in art uh, is because of his theological changes uh, in his in his reign. So that, yes, Anand and Nefertiti were, to obviously our perspective, closely related to be married. There is not an emphasis on, say, brother-sister marriages or even first-cousin marriages in the Egyptian royal family the way there have been in other royal traditions. So you do see it occasionally. Where you see it the most in ancient Egypt is actually during the Ptolemaic dynasty, Mm -hmm. where the Greek Macedonian kings and queens will do full brother-sister marriages, which was very rare 
in Pharaonic Egypt. So it, it's interesting how it plays out, and much of it seems with Akhenaten Nefertiti to deal with a very prominent family in Middle Egypt at the site of Akhmim, modern Akhmim, ancient Ipu, and that Akhenaten's mother, Queen Tia, came from that family, and Nefertiti's father likely came from that family as well. So there's a little bit more going on in terms of the politics and influential families behind the scenes than that we don't really get in in the hieroglyphic texts that survive. Interesting. Is there, um, I forgot what they call it, you know the 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 handwriting that that they had that is um, the common more common people use. Is there anything that would back it up in that? I forgot there's a name for it, but I just... Oh, hieratic. Yeah, yes. thank you. Hieratic, no, that's it. And actually, it's really funny because as I finished that sentence, hieroglyphic inscriptions, I was about to add as well as hieratic papyri. <laughs> okay. I was just going to ask, is there anything more in that? But I guess not. <laughs> no, no. Unfortunately, there just simply are not the sort of records in either hieroglyphic text or hieratic papyri uh, that would indicate exactly what was going on. That's not the sort of thing that they tended to talk about in their text or that would even survive, say, in an administrative record. It's interesting that they didn't talk about, I mean, they talked about romance, there was poetry, there's all this other kind of stuff, but they don't use that. I, I, it's kind of strange. <laughs> I think a lot of it is because we have no venue in the surviving documents where they would talk about prominent families who are also influencing the court. Because there's this idea that the king is making the decisions and he has counselors, but they get de-emphasized a lot in royal inscriptions where the king is presented with a problem, the advisors suggest a solution, but it's not as great of a solution or even a bad solution in comparison to what the king comes up with. So that the advisors are there only to be a foil to the king. And we do have private tombs um, that give us an indication of who the most prominent families are. But for example, when there was a feud between various factions, as there might have been during the reigns of Hatshepsut and the III. We get names hacked out, but we don't know why they were hacked out. No one says, this is the particular offense that this person committed or why I'm hacking out their name. We do know that Tia's parents, Yuya and Tuya, were very important individuals, and we know much about them because of the discovery in the early 1900s of their intact tomb in the Valley of the Kings. So it was rare for a queen's parents to be given a burial in the Valley of the Kings, particularly if they were not already members of the royal family, which Yuya and Tuya were not. And because all of that material has survived from their tomb, we have hieroglyphic texts on the coffins and other objects that tell us their titles and their positions in Ahmim. So if that intact tomb in the Valley of the Kings had not been found, we wouldn't know anything beyond the name of Tia's parents. And we know their names because of scarabs, very large scarabs bearing historical inscriptions that name 
Tia as the great royal wife, the chief queen of Amenhotep III, and they say Yuya was the name of her father and uh, Tuya was the name of her mother. But we wouldn't know anything about the lives of Yuya and Tuya if it weren't for that tomb. So there is just so much that we're missing that we have to infer from other sources, but there might be all kinds of fascinating things going on with the identity of other queens, even just in the 18th dynasty, that we don't know because we don't have the texts that tell us. So if we found Nefertiti's tomb finally, that would add to that record? It would depend on what was in it. <laughs> okay, that makes sense, yeah. <laughs> so, for example, Tutankhamun's tomb uh, does have cartouches of Akhenaten uh, and another king, a very shadowy figure named Smenkhkare, and even a female king named Neferneferu Aten. Uh, so there's a little bit of that in his tomb, but nothing from his tomb tells us who those people were. Ah. So we know their names from other sources as well. In Smenkhare's uh, case, very, very few other sources. But even though they're named in Tutankhamun's tomb as rulers that predated him, it doesn't tell us anything about their identities. Is there any uh, backup for the theory that uh, the female pharaoh is actually Nefertiti? So this is something we get into in Egypt's Golden Couple towards the end of the book when we discuss the successors of Akhenaten. And there is a debate, and still is, and it would be very difficult to definitively resolve it, of the identity of the female king who succeeds Akhenaten, either immediately after his death or possibly after the reign of Ankhepuru-re Smenkhkare, uh, although likely he was a very short-lived co-regent. The female king, her name is Anhet Hepururé, Nefer Neferu Aten. So the living one of the manifestations of Ra, the sun god, uh, beautiful is the perfection of Aten. So then another name of the sun god. And Nefer Neferu Aten is also an epithet of Nefertiti. Yeah. So within her cartouches, she can be Nefertiti, Nefer-Neferuaten, or Nefer-Neferuaten, Nefertiti. And, and again, that term Nefer, beautiful, or perfection, appears both in that title, as well as her own name, Nefertiti, which is Neferet, the beautiful one, E-E-T, has arrived, has come. And... That's one of the major pieces of evidence that maybe King Neferneferwatan is indeed Nefertiti. But if you look at representations of Neferneferwatan, they do not look like Nefertiti. Instead, they look like the eldest daughter of Akhenaten and Nefertiti, who is married to Aten. And so married Aten, we believe, used Nefertiti's title, Neferneferwatan, as her birth name. She uses it as if it is her given name as king, uh, and then takes a coronation name that is similar to that of her husband, Ankhepuru Smenkhkare. 
So sorry, there was a lot of names, but <laughs> it's, <laughs> I think I needed to work on an elevator pitch that, that has that information in it. Um, so basically, King Nefer-Neferuaten, who is a woman for certain, maybe Nefertiti, but is most likely, in our opinion, the eldest daughter of Akhenaten and Nefertiti, whose name was Mary Dunn. That kind of makes sense because um, a lot of the stuff I, you know, I, I've mentioned this to you many times. I'm a huge archaeology and I, I watch it, I read a lot of books, watch a lot of documentaries. And one of the things that uh, they say in those is that um, Nefertiti and Akhenaten were kind of not only raising Tutankhamun to be a as the king, but also their eldest daughter to be the ruler, the pharaoh. So that actually makes a lot of sense. <laughs> it, it does, and we can't say for certain. That's the thing, and there there is a little bit of evidence against Mary Dotton as well because of actually a box from the tomb of Tutankhamun that lists the names of King Neferneferuaten, and then also has the name Mary Dotton which is weird because normally uh, you don't have three cartouches, three name rings referencing a single king. So there is evidence on both sides uh, of that debate with Nefer-Neferuaten's identity. Um, now, this is going to sound like a strange question, but the Egyptians seem to me to be very good at um, spinning. <laughs> It use taking information and putting it into their own whatever their political beliefs are and stuff. Do you think any of that might be a little spin from the uh, the time of Tutankhamun to you know you know what I mean? It's just like Ramses was very good at taking credit for stuff other people did to you know and and kind of spin the. But it so he was the great warrior, even though he was part of it, but he wasn't the warrior who did it. Um, do you think there was any spin in that? When when is that maybe that's why there's three cartouches? Oh, so that's a really great question, and it, it's always really important every single time you look at an ancient Egyptian historical text to think about the context, to think about where is there spin or propaganda, or even not a hard political realism, but maybe a use of history as ritual, which you often read about, uh, and I think isn't emphasized enough sometimes. I think we tend to be very cynical about people's motives, and I always like to first look at, well, what could we possibly say in the context of their civilization that isn't necessarily cynical or being done purely for power, and then considering other other options. So I think all the spectrum of possible motivations is, is really important to consider. In the case of those three names in the box and the Tomb of Tutankhamun, that was actually done during the lifetime of King Nefertiti, whoever she may have been, whether Nefertiti or Mary Dunn. So what Nef what Tutankhamun does in terms of spin is he erases the memory of King Nefertiti and takes some of her burial goods, including a coffin and several statues, and includes well, I shouldn't say Tutankhamun does because 
dead by this point, but his advisors take objects from King Neferneferwatten's burial and use in Tutankhamun's tomb. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, theory about uh, because he died so young and so quickly that they uh, they had to use stuff from um, both his mother and his sister in order to uh, get enough in, uh, stuff in there. So that kind of fits into that theory. Yes, I would say it was, it was padded out <laughs> a bit, uh, but most of it does seem to have actually been made for for Tutankhamun, and there there was just a tremendous amount of material. So it, but to think about the the shock that must have gone through the royal court when Tutankhamun died, and you can tell most I think where the unpreparedness comes in. Is, is the most obvious is in the decoration of Tutankhamun's tomb. Mm-hmm. It's possible that that tomb, actually it's very likely that tomb was not even made for him originally. It was probably adapted from another unfinished tomb or possibly a tomb not belong, not intended to belong to a king. And the decoration is, is very basic in comparison to what you tend to have in, in royal tombs. So it is just plastered and painted. The painting isn't even of that high of quality. It probably really was done in the 70 days between death and um, the final stages of mummification and burial. And that's very different from the carved and painted tombs that become most prominent actually immediately after the reign of Tutankhamun, but was even true of his father's tomb at, at Amarna, at Akhenaten, which was elaborately carved and plastered and painted. It's most of that decoration is, is mostly gone today. Uh, but in Tutankhamun's tomb, you really get the sense of they were not ready to bury a king. No. And they, <laughs> they just put some plaster up and painted it and uh, stuck him in the tomb. I mean, what was he, 17, 18? He was a kid. <laughs> yes, I think 18 or 19 um, it is the, the best guess in terms of his his age of death. Yeah. So, I mean, they weren't expecting that. He was, like I said, he was a kid. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's sort of like when Princess Diana died and they had to do the funeral on the last minute and they used... Uh, by, with her permission, the Queen Mother's funeral, uh, because they didn't have anything in place for somebody as young as Diana. It, 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 oh, I mean, it ha- I, I not heard that. How tragic. I know. It's really sad. Um, but um, I, I had read that in a couple of places. And actually, I think it was her um, her sister who's married to the guy who was the uh, Queen's um, I forgot what they call it. He's like a secretary. Um, uh, Diana's sister was married, and she was the one who mentioned that the Queen Mother gave permission to use her funeral. Um, mm-hmm. um, because they weren't, ex- you know, Diana was young. Nobody expected it. I, it's, so, I just, I'm just kind of putting it together for modern people to kind of get, maybe. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> Um, but it was a last-minute thing. Uh, it, it was something that uh, the country was going through really 
scary thing and they had to figure something out and that was what they did. So maybe that's what was going on in ancient Egypt when Tet died so suddenly. That, that's a great comparison. Thank you. <laughs> it just it, it actually just popped it, and there's a lot of because um, this year Diana would have turned 60, so there's been a lot of stuff about her this year um, that yeah. I've been reading and and watching. So um, that's why it popped into my head probably. <laughs> But yeah, it's it's very sad um, for both of them. Um, but anyway, it just it just popped into my head. I this is another question. As I mentioned, I watch a lot of documentaries, and before we did our interview, I wanted to see what the documentaries looked like for um, Akhenaten and Nefertiti. And it's kind of interesting because you mention it in your you and your husband mention it in your book that. You know, it's like half and half that uh, about the heretic king and, and or not. And and if you look at the documentaries, just pull up YouTube and put their names up. About half half heretic and half don't. <laughs> you know, it's really weird. <laughs> well, and if it's not heretic, then it's false prophet or uh, it's almost always something slightly disparaging, which I think is, is best avoided when choosing a subtitle. Um, I, I guess unless unless it really does state your thesis. So uh, which which heretic and, and false prophet does in, in the books that I'm thinking of, but that concept of, of a heretic doesn't seem to work as well when describing Akhenaten's reign as one would imagine. So he his reign was rejected, uh, certainly already a bit during the reign of King Neferneferuaten, who we've spoken so much about, but then accelerating during the reign of Tutankhamun, again, I'm sure being urged by his advisors, because when he came to the throne, he was probably only nine or ten. And in that case, Akhenaten is cast as a rebel or an enemy and that the gods abandoned Egypt. So I, I do understand why those terms are used because they resonate in the modern world. But there's no ancient Egyptian term that you could translate as false prophet or heretic. Uh, the title that they give him in Later texts, they call him the the rebel or the enemy from Akhenaten. It's interesting because there's some really important Egyptologists that uh, really were part of the heretic group. I was kind of shocked. Um, oh, that I mean, that's a that's a totally standard presentation of of Akhenaten. It, it's not that that in and of itself. an outlier. <laughs> and like I said, it is it is a term that resonates in in the modern world uh, and would have for, for quite some time. But we attempted to reevaluate Akhenaten and Nefertiti's lives, not so much from how they were perceived after their deaths, but instead what did they do 
Mm-hmm. How did they see themselves when they were alive? What were the influences on them, particularly from the reigns of Amenhotep III and Queen Tia? But even going back to Hatshepsut, we, we see a lot of similarities in what Hatshepsut does with her art and what Akhenaten does with his. And what we thought, what we set out to do was write something where Akhenaten and Nefertiti would recognize themselves. And I'm not sure they would always recognize themselves in, in other books. And obviously, we there's so much we don't know. But we thought it was time to take a fresh look at them as ancient people in the context of what kings and queens were otherwise expected to do. And some of the aspects of Akhenaten's reign as presented to popular audiences don't provide the necessary context that actually that's something the king was expected to do. So Akhenaten took it a step further, but it's not as if by that he is inherently betraying his office by making theological changes, for example. Hepchatsit was one of my favorites. I I love her. She was just of all of the rulers of Egypt, she's one of the coolest. So 
why not Nefertiti or Hatepsut or somebody cool like that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so now that the uh, the when's the book come out? Um, how can people get it? Uh, what press is it in? <laughs> All that good stuff. <laughs> so the title is Egypt's Golden Couple: When Akhenaten and Nefertiti Were Gods on Earth. It is being published by St. Martin's Press, and the publication date is November 1st, 2022. And it is available at all major retailers, including independent bookstores. So on uh, our Instagram page, at Vintage Egyptologist, you can see a link to uh, the different outlets. Uh, So for example, Amazon and Barnes & Noble. There is also, if you want a personalized signed copy, we have a collaboration with a local independent bookseller here in Connecticut named RJ Julia, and you can go on the RJ Julia website and order a personalized signed copy. Cool. That would be really cool. And um, are you going to be doing um, signings and and talks, or even if it's virtual? uh, when, when the book comes out? Yes, absolutely. And and all of those dates are to be determined. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it, uh, I would say the best way to get updates is to follow Vintage Egyptologist on Instagram. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of Vintage e- Egyptologist on Instagram, uh, you have the coolest things with pictures that you do with the, where you do the 1920s and 1930s is there going to be a book of your incredible vintage work oh uh, well thank you for the compliment that is also something that we have been considering because we have been so lucky to collaborate with photographers really around the country and especially in Egypt. So that that is something we would like to explore is collaborating with uh, the photographers on not just creating content for social media, but possibly a a book. And John also has taken many of my absolute favorite photos. So uh, at least we know we have the the copyright uh, on those. Yeah. (laughs) So at the very least, uh, we we could publish that. Because... uh, you, you, they're so elaborate. I mean, they're so. Uh, it's deeply. It's like an acting job when you do those things. Um, it's it's such uh, an elaborate picture. Um, is it a? Is it something that you set up, and and then the photographer comes in, or is it a, a, something that's between you and the photographer, or how does that work when you guys are doing those? Very often, the photographer will also be the art director. So some of the really incredible shoots in Cairo, for example, with um, Lamolson and Manatola Hossam, uh, including shots where I'm wearing dresses by Egyptian designers, those are all art directed by the photographers and other uh, people who are collaborating. So it it really varies uh, shoot to shoot, uh, but yes, it it can be. Uh, it I think the idea of it being like an acting job, and I think often even 
actors, you don't understand just how much time every single shot takes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like when you watch a movie and you think about, wow, the amount of time it took to dress the set uh, and get the lighting perfect. It's, it's kind of unreal to, to imagine. If, if you, I love to find out about um, designers, uh, uh, movie designers, like um, uh, Julie Andrews' ex-husband, who was her best friend, who recently passed away, Tony, Tony Hamilton. The work he did, both as a theater designer and as a, a movie designer, it's just incredible. And and then I saw one about Ori Kelly, who also did a lot of theater. It, you have to have an incredible eye. So I wonder, because your pictures are that elaborate, uh, uh, is, is it um, the photographers must have an incredible eye in order to get all that into a still. <laughs> Oh, absolutely, and it's it's always a really fun project when John and I create something even in our house and and go hunting for particular objects to include and looking through earlier photography, you know, earlier photographs as well as works of art to recreate or at least be inspired by particular elements and in the captions. I almost always mention, you know, what the inspiration was, who the art director was, and uh, sometimes we'll even include a comparison photo so you can see what we were inspired by when, when we made the image. There's one of Theta Barra that you did that was really, really cool. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was really well done. I don't know who did it, but it was just, oh, brilliant. <laughs> That's so kind. You're welcome. Um, we're coming to the end. Um, you gave your um, your uh, your website, but could you give your social media so people can say hi? So on Instagram at vintage underscore Egyptologist. Okay. Are you on Twitter or Facebook or Pinterest or any of the others? I know. You just on Instagram? <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, we also have a, a few videos up uh, on YouTube. Also, uh, the channel name is Vintage Egyptologist. And now that uh, Egypt's Golden Couple is being published, we are going to be able to have more time to create some new videos that are much deeper dives into Egyptology. But other way, the, otherwise, the, the best way to stay in touch is through Instagram, and I also have a second account at How to Read Hieroglyphs. That is just that. <laughs> I <laughs> love that. That's one of my favorite hieroglyphs. So, and um, I should also mention that my email, Colleen at ColleenDarnell.com, uh, if you want to sign up for my email list, uh, where I announce. Zoom classes that I teach. Sometimes they're hieroglyphs or Egyptian history or Egyptian religion. As I mentioned, I just wrapped up a fashion in ancient Egypt class. And so if you want to find out more, you can send me an email and then be on uh, the, the list for future class announcements. That's so cool. I love your hieroglyph classes. They're just so cool. <laughs> Thank you. I learned a lot from them. Um, 
<laughs> it's easier to pick up than the books on hieroglyphs because I've tried. <laughs> Maybe because you guys are so into it. I don't know, but it's it's actually easier to do it. And and you can hear you guys pronouncing stuff. So that also makes it easier. <laughs> so anyway, thank you. Um, and thank you very much for taking the time to come on the show. I really appreciate it. It was delightful to be able to chat again. Thank you. And thank you for chatting with Sherry.